0: Listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suter. Join us every week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what is going on in the world right now and also what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. It's an issue as old as time, poverty and how to fix it, as our world becomes more and more connected through the internet, governments and trade, We're learning more and more about the struggles of the poor, and for many, the desire to address inequality is only growing. While both sides of the political spectrum disagree about the root cause, a new book is examining a different angle. Keith, thanks for joining me to discuss this one. Can you tell us about this book?
1: Yeah, so the book is by Matthew Desmond, who is a sociologist from Princeton, New Jersey. And the book is called Poverty, Poverty. By America. And this is based on an article about the book, which appears in The Atlantic. And interestingly, it's all summed up in the title of the article, The One Cause of Poverty That's Never Considered. So in the discussions on poverty, there are basically two schools of thought. One school of thought, which you get from the conservatives usually, is to say it's the fault of the individual. So in other words, that you might get a, a teenage girl who has the wrong sort of boyfriend, she ends up as an unmarried mother and if she keeps the baby, then her life is determined for the next 20 years. So that was a a mistake by her or you might end up with a young fellow or female for that matter who end up getting on drugs and their lives are ruined. In other words, it's the individual who brings the poverty on themselves. An alternative point of view comes from the left-wing people who would say poverty is much more structural and it's embedded within society. So in other words, that you're just born in the wrong place. In Australia, we call it poverty by postcode, that there are certain areas which are notorious for their high level of poverty. A child is born into poverty, is then raised in poverty, doesn't have any clear idea of a role model going off to work in the morning, for example, and thinks that living off welfare is the standard way of life. And so that child has its future determined for it by virtue of the circumstances into which it was born. It can change by individual initiative, but generally speaking, you get this high degree of, of poverty. Similarly, you also get a high degree of wealth. One of the ironies of economics is that there's a low level of unemployment in areas where there's a low level unemployment. Blinding insight from the <laughs> economics profession. Uh, <laughs> This struck home to me when the organisation I was associated with won a government contract to provide unemployment services to a North Shore suburb here in Sydney, very Mm. wealthy, affluent suburb. The problem is we couldn't recruit anybody to work in the office because everybody, you know, was was already happily employed. Yeah. So um, the government had decided there should be an unemployment project, but we couldn't even get the staff to operate the project. Wow. And, of course, in an area where you've got The area is Chatswood, got people who, for example, will play tennis with each other. And so one will talk to the other saying, oh, I've got a a nephew who's about to leave school. And the other person will say, oh, well, we'll be happy to take the person on. So that's high social capital. In the old days, it's been called networking. And so that person is born in the right area. And so they end up with a good job. And then hopefully, if they can avoid drugs and other temptations, will then have a a good life. As I say, somebody who's born in a more poverty-ridden area, they don't get that same sort of social capital benefit. Now, they can still get out of it, but generally speaking, a lot of them don't. And when they have their own children, that child is also raised in poverty. And so it just goes on. Mm. So it's multi-generational. So they're the two contrasting schools of thought on poverty. So one is the fault of the individual. The other one is the fault of society. This book by Matthew Desmond comes up with a third point of view, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And when, you know, when you read about it, you think, oh, it's pretty obvious, really, (laughs) except it wasn't obvious to me. Mm. So the argument here is that it's actually the rich who create poverty. In one of his earlier books that made a name for himself called Evicted, revealed a fundamental fact about poverty in America that had gone largely unrecognised but caused indelible harm. Routine ejections, dislodged children from schools, destabilised blocks and upended the lives of vulnerable people, stripped again and again of their possessions and dignity. And yet who's doing the evicting? Well, it's landlords who are in the business of making money. And he has, from that book, his earlier book, evicted this lovely description that The idea that sustained poverty doesn't just happen but is abetted by the conduct of more powerful social actors will not sound new. Interspersed with scenes of movers dumping children's toys on sidewalks as their detected mothers look on, were descriptions of landlords convening at meetings of the Milwaukee Real Estate Investors Networking Group, where the keynote speaker described the very nice cash flow generated by renting rooming houses to poor single men. Poverty did not materialise because of blind forces, such gatherings suggested it resulted from the greed and exploitation, a word that Desmond complained has been scrubbed out of the poverty debate. So we focus until I came across this book, we would focus on either the individual failings of people or the larger social factors. But this author, in his two books, Evicted, which is the study of an American city in the Midwest, and then, of course, his more recent one, what he's saying is, look, the problem is really with the wealthy and the way in which they behave. And this has been triggered also with the debate, well, it's come up from a number of sources. One is Black Lives Matter, where you've got activists who pull down statues of Civil War generals and all the rest of it. But they're not really doing anything to address the current issue, which I think is redlining. So from the 1930s onwards, the US government worked with real estate agents in dealing with the problem of what's called the Great Migration. So after World War One and into the 1920s, beginning from then on, we ended up with a lot of black people coming up from the south and settling in the big cities like Chicago or moving into California. Uh, So that's the great migration. And the white middle-class people were horrified. They're all in favour of liberation for the blacks, but don't have them living in my neighbourhood. NIMBYs. NIMBY, exactly, (laughs) not in my backyard. And so real estate agents started to draw red lines on certain streets to hem in black people. And so if you were a, a real estate agent, you would keep all the blacks living in a ghetto away from your white middle-class people. And, of course, over the decades, housing is an important way of accumulating wealth. It's always best, if you can, to own houses. I'm not giving any financial advice no. here. I'm not licensed to do that. No. But it does seem to me that you can be doing a lot with accumulating real estate assets over the decades The problem is, if you're living in a black ghetto, you don't accumulate wealth. So what is interesting for me is that if you really want to help the black population, don't worry so much about Civil War generals. Remember, the Civil War ended in 1865. Instead, do something about redlining. But as this article points out, the whole issue of redlining is supported by both Republicans and Democrats. The standard example of this is real estate in California. California is a solid Democrat state, right? So you can't blame greedy Republicans for blocking legislation. But who does block the legislation in terms of trying to end redlining, which, by the way, is technically illegal now in the United States, but it still goes on? Well, the people who block it are those who own existing properties. Right. These are the trendy individuals who um, are making lots of money out of information technology They're on the side of the underdog, but I don't want the underdog coming into a multi-family apartment building in my suburb.
0: Yeah, right. Is there anything that's similar in Australia?
1: An element of it. Mm. um, We don't, of course, have the same sort of non-white population, but we do. You know, you go over certain areas around Australia, you'll find ethnic clumps of people, so to speak. Because when people arrive into Australia, they tend to gravitate to the areas where people speaking their own language have previously already settled. That's not so much of a financial grouping Mm. as we've seen with redlining done by greedy real estate developers. I think it's, in that case, just more of a social cohesion or building up social capital.
0: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) There you go. So does Desmond then make the point about looking to the wealthy for the issues that we're seeing with poverty? Does that apply outside of the US or is it mainly kind of a US issue that he's referring to?
1: Well, I think, think, well, this book is a US study and I think it certainly does apply to the US. In a previous work that he did, including the book on evictions, he points out that, in fact, in places like Scandinavia, you do get greater emphasis on trying to equalise society, you know, sort of a welfare safety net et cetera, which you don't have in the United States. So the United States is an extreme example, though I am intrigued by a recent publication, I think from the Australia Institute, which says that Australia is now becoming more and more unequal and we're reaching the levels of the United States. So when you look at the distribution of wealth to the top 10% of Australia compared with the other 90%, the bulk of the wealth that's been generated in recent years has gone to the people in the 10% not those in the 90%. For example, if you own a house, then that is a way in which you can accumulate your wealth as distinct from paying rent. Now, there are some times when I think that paying rent is good. You know, if you're young starting out, you're not sure where you're going to settle down. But I think it's unwise to be paying rent when you retire, for example, because you've got the whole problem of rental stress, which is a lot of discussion. You shouldn't be spending more than 30% of your income On that. But if you're a retired person, you may not be getting a particularly large income. We have an economic system in this country (laughs) which actually sort of flows through to building up the wealth of the wealthy 10%. Now, governments would say, oh, well, you know, we're doing our best to try to help people. But in fact, it just seems to be built into the system that it's the wealthy who make the rules. Don't forget, many politicians themselves own investment properties. So they have a soft spot for. (laughs) <laughs> I bet they Probably do. owners. And so you get political parties who are there to protect the wealthy and punish the poor. And we've seen that with the robo debt scandal. You're listening
0: to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This week, we're discussing the cycle of poverty and what housing might have to do with it. Now, Keith, you did just talk to us a little bit about another article you sent me this week talking about the issue in Australia. Owning a home is becoming a bit of a pipe dream for more and more people. Are we facing a crisis in 50 years' time when these people are retiring and they don't have a house to their name? I mean, what's going to happen? What are we going to see?
1: Well, that's what I'm very worried about. The article I sent you was from First Links, 10 Reasons Owning Your Own Home Beats superannuation in retirement. And I found that a very interesting article. It's by Graham Hand, who's a veteran banker, now turned journalist and financial commentator. And the argument there is that uses a phrase that I hadn't come across before, which is called psychic income. So psychic income is when you know you've got a roof over your head.
0: Mm.
1: It's very reassuring. You don't have a landlord who's going to push you out of the building. And so he's, he puts that down. That psychic income gives you a sense of assurance. And I think it's particularly for older people. If you look at poverty in Australia, the three major causes are one, not owning your own home, two, not being married or in some sort of other stable relationship, and three, poor health. They are the three main causes of poverty in old age. So it pays to be married in good health and to be a property owner if you want to avoid poverty in old age.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. You know, the interesting thing that I started thinking about as I was reading these publications was that, you know, the Australian and American dreams revolve around home ownership. Mm -hmm. That's what both sides of the pond kind of aspire to. Is it the same in other countries, in Europe and places like that?
1: Yes, absolutely. We have seen a major change because in some of the European societies now, Housing has changed from being just a place of shelter and safety to actually a financial investment as part of the financialization of the economy as we talk about it. You know, in the old days you worked in a factory or you grew food, et cetera, on the farm. Now we have a whole industrial sector called the finance sector, which is banking, insurance, et cetera, and housing fits into that. So it pays, therefore, to be investing in housing. People will provide all sorts of arguments in favour of buying houses. Obviously, you've got what's called the psychic income, but you've also got major financial breakthroughs for acquiring houses and be willing to get rich slowly. I think it's probably risky to flip houses, buy a house, do it up and then try to sell it. You've got all sorts of capital gain implications, all sorts of things. But obviously, if you're going to stay in an area for a certain amount of time, you just allow the building up of what's called passive income. Mm. Passive income is money that you earn when you're asleep. Yeah. So you get others like what we're doing here. We're earning money by working, right? <laughs> yeah, and We're we both have to wide think. awake. Yep. We're thinking, right? We're sleeping here. Uh, but passive income is when when we're back to the ten percent to which I've referred. So the ten percent they make their money partly while they're still asleep through shares and owning properties which they can then rent out. Mm. And so once you get into that property ladder and then you build up, the trick, of course, is to get in as quickly as possible. One of my favourite examples of what's called the power of compounding is Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett is not the most successful financial investor in the world. He's the richest, but he's not the most successful. The people who run Renaissance Fund, the people who run that fund have made more money per year than Warren Buffett. But Warren Buffett has been at it for decades, much longer, and that's the power of compounding. So he's now, I think, in his early 90s, mid-90s. The bulk of his wealth has actually come along since he was age 65. Right. So he began, I think, around the age of nine. And so it's this very slow accumulation of, you know, starting out selling bottle tops and all sorts of other sorts of small stuff, running a pinball machine as well. And then around about the age of 65, suddenly the power of compounding kicks in. And then, you know, he's off to the moon as the phrase goes. Yeah. So he's not the most successful, but he is the richest because he's had time on his side and he's just been able to accumulate. Now, this would also apply to housing, that if you can buy a house when you're young and you stay in the real estate game, not necessarily in that same house, but then you get the power of compounding. And this explains how some of the families in England or elsewhere have been able to accumulate wealth over the generations because that wealth, again, has accumulated. My favourite example in this context is Ambassador Joseph Kennedy, who was the father of President John Kennedy and, well, golly, what would he be, great uncle, great grandfather of Robert Kennedy Jr., who's about to challenge Joe Biden for the Democrat nomination, Uh right? That Robert Kennedy. But what is fascinating is that much of their life is foreshadowed by Ambassador Kennedy, who, while he was still alive, created all sorts of trust funds. And that wealth has just accumulated. So Joseph Kennedy, who died back in the 1960s, has this long reach over the decades into the destinies of his children and then grandchildren and then ultimately, I'm sure, great-grandchildren.
0: Nepotism, it's a word that's getting a lot of attention at the moment actually <laughs> among young folk. Yes, um, absolutely. <laughs> talking about these celebrities and, and people in positions of power who are just born into it and they don't even have to try. And I guess what I wanted to ask you to kind of finish up is that is there a lesson in any of this that we can take away? Is Do we have to change our approach? Is there anything we can
1: do? Is it just the state of the world? Oh, we, we can make all sorts of changes. That's what that other article to which I referred 10 Reasons, Earning Your Own Home Beats Super in Retirement. Graham Hand talks about what could be done. In other words, that you start to tax that family home, mm. principal place of residence. But, of course, that'd be politically suicidal. And what so about we know people? the answers. The problem is no politician is willing to do it.
0: Yeah, and is there a then, say, if I bought a house, I wouldn't be wealthy because I bought the house. You know, are they going to tax me as well sort of thing? Like... Or is it for everyone who owns a house? Well, no,
1: you're, you're getting into the complexity of home ownership. <laughs> uh, but, of course, if you were able to buy a house and held on to it, you would accumulate wealth.
0: I'd eventually be them. I'd be one of the them one instead of the percent, the
1: <laughs> Complaining about the others. Yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> lots to think about. Thanks for your company, Keith. It was a great chat. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nicolich.